Well, praise God. I hope you've come to uh, worship God and hear his word. That's why I came. That's why I always come. Because it's always good to be in the house of the Lord on the day of the Lord, to be with the people of the Lord, and to explore his word. No better place to be. I thank you, Father, for this gathering. And, Father, may uh, you speak through me today, Lord. Let it not be me, but you. And may yours be open to hear and hearts open to receive what you have to say to your children today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you know, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, transformations. And uh, we have explored uh, where we are and where we want to go and how we get there. And so uh, I'm going to add another little piece to how we get there today. You remember last week, if you were here, that uh, Tyler spoke uh, about uh, transformation and talked about the fact that uh, when, you, when a soldier uh, enlists or is drafted and goes into basic training, the goal there is to strip away all individuality in him. Uh, so, and, it's, and he used that as a, as a simile to uh, our walk as a Christian. Uh, we have to uh, lose our individuality and become part of the team that, uh, that Christ wants uh, to mold here in his church. I remember when my, I, I never served in the military myself, but I do remember when my youngest son, fresh out of high school, joined the Air Force. And uh, much to the dismay of his mother, but uh, he, uh, he left for uh, the uh, basic training in San Antonio, Texas, with uh, hair down to his uh, shoulders and a beard that uh, was almost as long, and 24 hours later, uh, he had very little hair, <laughs> if any, <laughs> and, uh, and when he was accustomed to sleeping until 11.30, getting up early was maybe 10, uh, and now he was up every morning at 5.30, and walking a lot further than he had ever walked in his life, but all of this, was, you see, was to strip away what he was, an individual to make him into something other, a team, a team, because the unit had to be uh, consolidated and in unity. And it's the same way in the Christian life, you see. In the Christian life, to go up is to go down. To be first is to be last. To be great is to be small. And whether we're dealing with unbelievers or confessing Christians or ourselves, the battle is always the same. It begins with us and it's in us. You see, before I came to Christ, I wasn't divided. I was united. I was dead in my trespasses. Uh, the struggle began and continues today once Christ entered in. Suddenly, there was a division which wasn't there before. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of darkness once reigned there, 
and is desperately trying to get back what it lost. But Jesus, the Bible also says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We're dealing with offenses today. The verse on the front of your program says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. I'm glad that Paul included the church of God because offenses reign in his church as well as any, in the world. Yes, there will be offenses, but unfortunately there are offenses in his church as well. Now, if you turn to your Bibles to Romans, the 12th chapter, a very familiar set of two verses, which I'm going to use as a launching point for my discussion this morning. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version. <clears throat> Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed, be transformed. This implies a dramatic change, a total change. Caterpillar to butterfly change. And you know, once the butterfly becomes a butterfly, he can't go back to be a caterpillar. He dies, and life starts anew. This message uh, is born out of a couple of things. As, as some of you know, maybe all of you know, my wife Connie and I spend uh, five months out of the year in Florida. And uh, we spend a little longer this time than, than usual for uh, reasons that uh, I won't go into, but uh, we, uh, we spend our winters there. And this year when we arrived in Florida, of course, it was cold. And the people down there accuse us of bringing the cold down from the north. They say, oh, you're one of those frozen chosen. I say, yes, up there many are cold, but few are frozen. And, uh, <laughs> but at any rate, when we arrive there, the, the church that we attend when we go there uh, had just started. We were the, we arrived, I think, on the third of January, uh, and uh, the first Sunday we went to church. We we discovered that the church, as a community, had uh, entered into a 21-day fast, starting at the beginning of the year. Now, this you could choose the kind of fast that you wanted to fast. You didn't have. It could be it could be total. It could be Jews. It could be Daniel fast. Uh, it could be of your own choosing but your own choosing but the idea was to give up something and to get closer to God through it uh, so 
Connie and I decided we would give up something, and what we, but, but what we made an addition to was in the morning, we would, uh, we often have our devotions together, and, uh, we, and, and we often pray together. But for this period of time and a little bit beyond that, we separated. She went into one of the spare bedrooms, and I went to the living room, and we just spent time with God. We, we read books like uh, uh, Madame Guyon's Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ, uh, Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation, the, uh, is it Foster, Connie, the, the Celebration of Discipline. You know, these were the things that we began to feed our mind with in addition to his word. And uh, we learned to hear from God a little better. And the Lord at that time in my Time, began to deal with me about my whole inner attitude. And uh, it called to mind, remember, Dick, uh, some years ago we did the anger management classes when we were downtown in, in the, uh, downtown on Main Street. And, uh, you were a rough yeah, I was a rough student. And uh, I remember when it was first announced, Connie says, are you going to take the anger class? <laughs> I said, who, me? What do you mean? I don't need to take it. But I took it. And see, I, and I, and I discovered that uh, I, I had an anger. It was what uh, the psychologists call a passive anger. I was not one to throw dishes or kick the, uh, kick the door in or put, put my fist through the wall, but I had an anger. And it was the same way with offenses. They were subtle and they were inner. But you know what? God knew. He knows. He even knows your thoughts. Kind of scary, isn't it? He knows them before you think them. That's even scarier. So anyhow, he began to show me things in my life that were offenses, maybe not so much to other people, but certainly to him. And in the midst of it all, I lost my Bible. Can you believe it? I lost my Bible. It just totally disappeared. Uh, I went without a Bible. I borrowed a Bible, and you know it wasn't the same. It was somebody else's Bible. Had stuff underlined that didn't make any any sense to me. I, I held off buying a new one because I figured mine would show up, but it didn't. So after about three weeks, I went down to Walmart and I bought a new King James Bible, the large print. Uh, and you know what? was exactly the same as the one I lost. It, was, it, had, it just didn't have the underlining, that's all. I, I had a little more trouble finding things, but it's in there. And so I got used to that, and I bought a new Bible cover, and, and I was back in business. But I realized in that time that I really knew a lot of what was in his word, even though I didn't have my Bible. I don't know how, whether it is with you, but with me, you know, I know, for example, I don't know where... Uh, I don't know, I know a certain verse, but I don't know the chapter in the verse. But I know it's on the right-hand page, near the bottom, on the outside column. <laughs> in this book. <laughs> and so I, I narrow it down to a few pages. And if it's underlined, well, it makes it a lot easier. But anyhow, I lost my Bible. And God began to deal with my whole identity thing. And he talked about offenses. The, the offenses that I committed 
probably more against him than other people, although that's not to exclude other people. The word offense, is show, offense shows up a lot in the Bible, especially in the, New Te- in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it quite a bit. And the word in the Greek is the word scandalon. You probably know that. It's, it's where we get the word scandal. Uh, is almost a direct a transliteration from the Greek word. The origin of the word really had to do with the, uh, a bait stick in a trap. You, uh, you know how these, uh, uh, these have-a-heart traps work. You put something inside and you prop the door up so when the animal goes inside, he, kick, he knocks off the stick, the door falls down, and the animal's trapped inside. Uh, that's the idea of scandalon. It is putting something in somebody's way that will cause them to trip up. But it could also mean a snare, a trap, an enticement, an allurement to do something that one shouldn't do. I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, and I won't read the definition, but I found it very interesting that the first two of three or four definitions that Webster lists for scandal had to do with the fall of religious people, religious leaders. Uh, and we know that that happens more, more often than we wish it would. So it is definitely connected with our spiritual life, with our walk with Christ. We find the word a lot, as I said in the Bible. The Pharisees were offended by Jesus and some of the things he said. Jesus told his disciples they would all be offended of him, by him at some point. Paul advises us to avoid those brethren who cause divisions and offenses in the church. The Jews found the cross of Christ an offense and a stumbling block, scandal. And Jesus himself is a stumbling block to many, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, so says Isaiah 8.14. All you have to do is talk to unbelievers about Jesus, and you'll find that he is an offense to them. He is a stumbling block that they can't get past until the Holy Spirit does some work. But he is also that stumbling block. Psalm 118, 22 and 23 say, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. Don't you like that? He's a stumbling block to some, but marvelous in the sight of those who have passed over the block and entered into his presence. And John writes in his first letter, If we abide in the light and love our brother, there's no cause for stumbling. So there's an abiding and a loving that that prevent us from stumbling. There are passages in the New Testament where either meaning to the word scandalon is perfectly uh, suitable, either a stumbling block or an enticement to sin. In Matthew 13, 41, however, Jesus promises us that in his kingdom, he will remove all offenses. Don't you look forward to that day? 
There will be no offenses in his kingdom. But for a closer examination, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. I want to walk through these first nine verses of this chapter very briefly because Jesus here talks about offenses. Now, the verse first says, At that time, disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples seemed to be obsessed with the notion of, of, of being elevated, of being high, of being great. Uh, who's going to sit at your left hand and your right hand? Yeah. And Jesus said, Are you able to do what I'm able to do? Are you able to go through? Are you, are you going to take the cup that I'm going to take? Are you going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? We used to sing a hymn in the church. Are you able, said the master, to be crucified with me? Yes, the sturdy dreamers answered. To the death will follow me. Yes, and they did. They did eventually drink that cup and suffer that baptism. But not where they were when they asked this question. Now, the reason that they asked this question, if we, if we, uh, I'm not going to, it's not going to be on the screen, but if you just look back to the ending of chapter 17, there's a very curious little story revealed here. At, at, verse, 21, at verse 24, we find out that Jesus is in, is in Capernaum, and they, someone called they, probably scribes and Pharisees, they come to Peter and they ask him, does the teacher pay the temple tax? Probably a legitimate question. Whether, what their motives were, pure or impure, is really not declared. But Peter says, yes. Yeah, he pays the tax. But when, when he arrives into the house, his house probably, since he lived in Capernaum, Jesus sort of knew what had happened. Jesus has that knack, doesn't he, of, of knowing what happened, even though he's not there. And he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? But Peter said, well, from strangers. He certainly knew that the Romans taxed the foreigners, not their own people. Then Jesus says, well, then the sons are free. But nevertheless, lest we offend them. Then he gives some really fascinating instructions. Go to the sea, cast in a hook, take that fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Christ in his graciousness not only pays his tax, but Peter's as well. But Peter has to work for it. Now, the thing that I find fascinating about this, this is a really odd miracle. But the thing that's fascinating about it is, he says, cast a hook and take the fish that comes up first. Now, according to my sources, this is the only place in the Bible where Peter fishes with a hook. He's always casting nets into the sea and getting lots of fish. But this time he says, you know, take your rod and reel, go down to the edge, catch the first fish that comes up, the money will be there. Fascinating. 
but I don't want to offend them. Let's pay them, but we're going to pay them in a most unusual way. Which probably prompted the disciples to say, well, now, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If I can cast an, a, a hook into a sea and catch a fish with money in it, wow. <laughs> Makes me pretty good. But Jesus says, listen, assuredly, verily, verily, get this point, guys. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? If you want to be great, be small. If you want to go up, get down. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, to sin, it would be better if a millstone were cast, placed around his neck and he's thrown into the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for they must come. But woe to the man by whom offenses come. Woe to the man by whom offenses come. And then, we won't go on here, but Jesus suggests a rather radical remedy for dealing with offenses. Cutting off hands, plucking out eyes, sound pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty rough, pretty extreme. Of course, he's not talking literally, he's talking figuratively. Avoid those things which cause offenses for you and through you. It's better to go in slightly maimed, but whole in a sense, than it is to put up with these things. In Matthew 18, 7, woe to the world because of offenses, for they must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. In this verse, the offenses are enticements to sin. Don't cause one of these little ones, these young Christians, not, not just little children, but young Christians, new in the faith, don't do things that are going to cause them to stumble. The same passage is related in, in Luke's gospel in, verse, in chapter 17, and there he says it's, a, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Here, the word is a the same word, but it is more accurately translated, a stumbling block. Don't put anything in the way of someone that's going to keep them from progressing in their walk with Jesus. So I said, well, Lord, I get this, I think. He says, yeah, you're getting it. What are these things that cause offenses? He said, well, for one thing, you're you're overly sensitive and you're quick to jump to conclusions. Now, this is not verbal. This is inside, internal. And, I, and he reminded me of how Peter was very bold. You know, Lord, Lord, everybody else will forsake you, but, you know, I'll be with you to the end. And a, and a little while later, he's denying he even knows the man. That's jumping to a quick conclusion. That's being overly sensitive. He said, you know, sometimes you're pretty fault-finding. You want to take the speck out of somebody else's eye, you still got a plank in your eye. Oh, yeah. I guess I think I see that. So sometimes you have a negative spirit. You have a negative spirit? Huh? Do you complain about the things that you don't have and forget what you do have? Hmm? 
Think on these things, Paul said, the things that are holy, just, pure, righteous. Is there anything of good report? Think about that. We're too busy mulling over bad reports, thinking on things that we don't have. You're prideful. You think you're always right. Think you can do no wrong. Whoop. Ouch. Sometimes you're moody, too, you know. But, 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 but I'm a man, God. I, I, I go into my cave, you know. <laughs> I got to go into my cave and hibernate for a while. Okay. So, what's the remedy? Well, the first thing he said was, you need to be alone with me more often. And that's what we were actually were doing that. We were in that process says, you need to get into my word. You need to get together with my people. You need to bring all your concerns to me. Can't you do that? Can't all of us do that? It's, this remedy is so simple. It's probably too simple. We want to make everything complicated. So anyhow, here is my remedy. This works for me. I see it working in me. To be quite truthful, I say that not to boast, but just because it's what God gave me. My prayer, very frequently, I wouldn't say every day, but very frequently, and this is a prayer that I pray the moment I wake up, before I'm out of bed, before I'm, as soon as I'm conscious enough to say something and realize I'm saying it. I say, Lord, this day, may I, may I neither make an offense or take an offense. I say, Father, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable to you. And I say, let no corrupt communication proceed out of my mouth. Only those things which are for necessary edification and that bring grace to the hearer. Could you do that today? He says, yes, I'm willing if you're willing. And then I say, Father, I know that the weapons of my warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. And they are for the pulling down of strongholds, for the casting down arguments and everything that rises itself against the power of God. And I'm going to take every thought captive to you, Jesus, until all my disobedience becomes obedience. And he says, that's good. And then I take up the full armor of God and I put it on. And then I remind myself of who I am, that Christ died for me, that it should have been me on that center cross between those two thieves. The spot was reserved for Barabbas, the thief, the murderer, some scriptures call him. That was my spot, but Jesus took my spot. He took your spot. He took all of our spots so that we, thieves, murderers, could go free. I remind myself of that because I don't know if you're like me, but I have a tendency to forget. Oh, yes, I know Jesus died for my sins, but I forget that it should have been me. It should have been me. He took my place. He took your place. He bled and died that I might go free. I want to live in that freedom. Don't you? Don't you want to experience that freedom? Then stop taking offense. Stop making offense. 
Put on the full armor of God. And finally, having done all, stand. Don't sit down. Don't fall asleep. Stand. I thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Father, your word is a lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. I've hidden it in my heart that I might not sin against you. And it is ever new. It is ever new. It always speaks to me the things that I need to hear. Thank you, Father. I pray that your word has gone forth and touched other lives as it touches mine. I thank you for the opportunity to share today. And I ask you, Father, now to bless everyone here today, to kindle in them a new fire, a new passion, as was spoken of earlier. Because you are relentless, Lord. You won't let us go until we're fully yours. It's what you want. It's what you designed us for. It's what Christ came and died for. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.